0: Turning again uh, this evening to the early chapters of the book of Genesis that we're studying as a congregation at this time, uh, to chapter 2 and looking together at verses 16 and 17 of this chapter. And the foundation for living that we're thinking of uh, this evening is covenant. Now, we are all familiar with the concept of covenant. Within our society, we have the very familiar uh, covenant of marriage between two equal parties, a man and a woman. They make promises to each other, don't they? They give the sign of their covenant in rings, usually, to each other. We're familiar, perhaps, with the, the tenancy agreement, which is often in, in legal language called a covenant Now that is is not a covenant between equal parties, as you will know if you have ever rented a property. Certainly you are the lesser party in that agreement. The owner, eh, the renter, sets down stipulations when you should pay the rent, how much rent you should pay. No pets allowed perhaps, no decorating he might advocate, no parties to be held in this house. We are familiar with the concept of covenant covenant between two parties, promises, agreements, perhaps some threats of misdemeanor included in that covenant. We come to consider the fourth foundation for living in Genesis 2 and 3, which is covenant in 16 and 17. Alongside of work Alongside of identity, our identity, alongside of the Sabbath day, alongside of marriage, alongside of grace, alongside of sin, is this foundation for our living covenant. Here we encounter the first covenant given by God to humankind. God considered it necessary an important dimension to the first man and the first woman living in this earth that they should experience covenant. This is the only way that God relates to us. And we're familiar with other covenants within the Bible. The covenant with Noah about the flood never happening again. The covenant with Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David that he would have a a king who will reign forever, and then, of course, the new covenant that the Lord Jesus speaks of in the Last Supper. But before those well-known covenants of grace, there was what different writers call the covenant of nature, the covenant of law, the covenant of life. We'll stick with the covenant of works with Adam and Eve In the Garden of Eden. In verses 16 and verse 17. Perhaps this subject is foreign to you. Perhaps you've read this chapter numerous times. And you've never thought of these verses containing a covenant. But this idea is included in our church catechisms and confession. Confession of Faith 7.2 writes. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So here is another foundational aspect of our lives. If you want further reading on this, O. Palmer Robertson, The Christ of the Covenants, uh, deals with this issue. Or A New Systematic Theology by Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley gives three chapters to the Covenant of Works. Four points this evening. The essence of the Covenant of Works, the evidence of the Covenant of Works. Some objections uh, to this idea of covenant here and then applications uh, of this Foundation for living for us. Think first of all of the essence of the covenant of works. What belongs to a covenant of works? We want to see that while the name covenant is not found in verses 16 and 17, yet the elements of a covenant are there, and the confession and catechisms rightly describe it as a covenant. And as we think of the elements or the essence of a covenant, there is two types there is the essential elements and there is the common elements. What is a car? Well, perhaps we could argue that a car is something with an axle set of axles probably chassis, four wheels, an engine. We have a car. That's the essential elements of the car. But then there's common elements of a car. There's often seats in a car. Sometimes a roof rack in a car. Often doors in a car. A bonnet, a boot. Those are common elements of a car. But not essential elements of a car. And so as we, we think of the essence of a covenant, we're thinking just, just first of all of the essential elements And they are found here in verses 16 and 17. And then, on top of that, there are some common elements of covenants that are found in 16 and 17 as well. First of all, the essential elements are parties, commands, signs. They're there when a covenant takes place. Parties. In this case, there are two parties. There is God and there is man. And in any covenant, there are parties. And so, this essential element is found in this place God and man. The second element is commands or stipulations, and and they belong to the agreement, to, to the covenant. And here is the command not to eat of the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word used here is command, a major word for commandment in the Old Testament law. So here is the first commandment being given by God to human beings. There's a command of permission that you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you may not eat of that. The permissive command was rich. Uh, the, the idea here you may eat uh, of the, the trees of the garden. The idea of the word eat is to eat to your heart's content. There was no limit. There was no restriction. You can have five pears or, or four apples per day. There was no limit on what they could eat. They could eat to their fullness. But then there was that restrictive command. of The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. And we properly understand as we we see from other parts of scripture that this single command given by God to Adam assumes that the Ten Commandments were written on his heart and that he was under obligation not only to keep this one announced command but also the Ten Commandments which he had been made in the image of God And established in a state of innocence. So here is the command. This command not to eat of the tree. And the command to keep the Ten Commandments. Which we learn from the book of Exodus. Another essential element of covenant is threat for breaking the terms of the covenant. And here the explicit threat is stated that if the terms of the covenant are broken death will be the ensuing punishment. And in that threat of death, there is also the implicit promise of life, that if the the covenant is kept, that if there is obedience uh, by mankind to God and his rules, then, then life will be granted. A higher life, a richer life, A life in heaven, as John Calvin argues, which was represented as we announce today in the Sabbath day each week to them, filled with rest, filled with worship. The explicit idea here is the threat of death for disobedience, but the implicit promise is of a richer, fuller, eternal life for obedience. Thus, the essential elements of a covenant are here. There are parties. There are commands. There are threats. There are promises. There is the sign of the the tree of life in the midst of the garden. But then there are common elements. There are those add-ons which are sometimes found in other covenants and sometimes not. God's name of Lord is used here. His covenant name, his name of grace and salvation and mercy, rich in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's found in this context in verses 16 and 17. 16 The Lord God commanded the man. The sign of the covenant is here, the sign of the tree of life. We know the sign of the rainbow, the sign of rings at a wedding. Here's the sign of the tree of life in the midst of the garden. Perhaps Adam being addressed and operating as prophet, priest and king also indicates the presence of a covenant here. As prophet he receives God's word and will communicate it, he will speak it to Eve. As priest, he's in the middle of this temple in the Garden of Eden. Temple language is being used repeatedly of Adam as a priest worshipping God in the Garden of Eden. As king, he names the animals. Here is Adam in an official capacity here as representative prophet, priest, and king. And so from the essential elements of covenant and the common elements of covenant... We see the, the essence of the covenant of works in these verses. We're constantly amazed by archaeology, aren't we? They keep discovering these old Roman cities and their baths and their sewage system and their underground heating. And while they didn't use the terminology perhaps that, that we're using in our more, more technical age, yet the essence of the ideas, was there. And while the word covenant is not found in verses 16 and 17, yet the elements of covenant is here. There are parties, there are promises, there are threats, there are commands, there are signs that is the covenant name of God. These verses connect us. By virtue of the fact that this covenant is still in place. This covenant of works is still out there. It is still promised by God that anyone who can perfectly keep his commands will live, will merit eternal life This was the promise to Adam, the promise to Eve. Keep my word, my will perfectly and you will engage in and enter into a richer, fuller experience of life. Break it and death will come, but keep it and eternal life will be given to you. In the Confession of Faith in its chapter 19, It refers to parts of the New Testament which make this very point. It considers this covenant in Eden not to be something which is limited to the pre-fall world but to be something which is lasting throughout time. It refers to Galatians 3 verse 12. The law is not of faith rather The one who does them shall live by them. It is indicating in its references there and in many other places in chapter 19 that that what we're thinking of here in the Garden of Eden is not something divorced from us, separate from us, but something deeply connected to us. If we can keep God's law perfectly, we will have eternal life. What was offered to Adam, the first man, to Eve, the first woman, has been offered to us as well. And This brings us to the gospel, doesn't it? That what Adam couldn't do, what you and I cannot do, what no man has ever done, Jesus has done. That eternal life offered to the first man and woman for perfect law keeping. They could not keep on our behalf. And we, if we were there, could not keep for ourselves. But what they have failed to do, Jesus has done. And through Jesus' obedience, Jesus' perfect law keeping, we enter into eternal life. I've been reading about the, the first uh, UK female astronaut. Uh, she's on this five-year training program. She's heading off to, to Germany to be submerged uh, in, in water uh, for hours at a time to, to get her acclimatized to, to floating through space. She, she'll be put in, in, in those uh, machines which which swivel around at great pace to, to help her to, to acclimatize To what she'll experience as she exits and and enters planet earth. And she's passing through all that. To inform us. To educate us. To help us. To give us insight into an area which you and I could certainly never enter into. And here is Jesus, our saviour. Stepping in where Adam couldn't go. Succeeding where he failed. That promise of eternal life held out to everyone who lived throughout the Old Testament and no one could grasp it. No one could earn it. No one could keep it. But Jesus came. Put himself under the law and kept it on our behalf. And when we repent of our sin, and believe in Jesus Christ, we receive from God that perfect righteousness of Christ. And what a thing that is. Gary Lineker has been cleared of the, the court case that, that the tax office brought against him. They were seeking at millions of what they claimed was, was unpaid tax. He's been cleared of any wrongdoing in relation to that. What a great thing that is for him. What a weight of his shoulders. But he does have to pay 400,000 pounds in legal fees. But when we are declared righteous, when we are justified by God's grace on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience, there is nothing we contribute to this nothing left over for us to pay. Jesus takes on these terms, these conditions of the covenant of works. And he secures by his obedience that higher life than Adam had, that eternal life which was proffered to him, and which you and I, we know, receive, as we believe in the only begotten Son, and have Eternal life. The essence of the covenant of works. Secondly, the evidence of the covenant of works. Perhaps you've been looking at these verses, uh, sitting in church and saying, well, well, whoa, 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 I, I need some more help here. Well, I'll give you a bit more help here in the second point. The evidence uh, of the covenant of works. It's there in our doctrinal standards, and I encourage you to, 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 to look over those. We, we, we know that they were written by fallible men. But we recognize that the collective wisdom of these theologians is helpful for us. And so, in the Confession of Faith in chapter 7, paragraph 1 and paragraph 2, it mentions God making a covenant between himself and the creature because he is so great, he condescends to enter into this agreement. The great God, he deserves our obedience, the paragraph says. But here he is, coming in his infinite grace down to humanity, and saying, "Obey me, and I will reward you." He doesn't have to do that. He deserves our obedience and our worship, but in his grace he comes and he says, "You obey me, and I will give you a richer life." In paragraph two seven seven two it says, "The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. You're familiar with the short catechism answer, I would guess, better. Question 12, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So our doctrinal standards, they recognize that verses 16 and 17 is a covenant of works. The scriptural support for asserting that this is a covenant is found in three places. The first is in the book of Hosea, which we read together, chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. And here is the prophet addressing the people of his time. God speaking through him, desiring not sacrifice, but steadfast love. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This personal relationship with God rather than tradition, rather than outward religion. It's this inward desire of the heart. Then it goes on to say in verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Some people translate the verse in Adam, the city of Adam in the Old Testament, but the the Hebrew is clear. It's like Adam. Others translate Adam as mankind, men. Eh, Some translations eh, go for that, but then the verse wouldn't make sense, was it? Because Israel was part of humanity. And so it's best to understand it as it's translated for us here. Adam, the first man, and the covenant, been the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. The second key passage is Isaiah twenty-four five and six. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Beaky and Smalley, hone in on the last two words: the everlasting covenant. And they comment the only legal arrangement that scripture records God making with the whole human race and resulting in a curse on the earth is God's command to the first man, the everlasting covenant. Then in Romans 5, 12 to 19, that that long and and, and dense passage, uh, the key idea here is death is identified as the result of of Adam's transgression in verse 12 in verse 14 in verse 15 in verse 17 and in verse 21 death death which was threatened to Adam and Eve in, in chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 came upon Adam, Eve and all of their humanity and, and the life of which was implied in the promise in the Garden of Eden comes on all who believe in Jesus, and Jesus is the head of the New covenant which indicates and supports our contention that Adam was the head of the Covenant of Works. The evidence of Covenant of Works. The programme Flog It throws up some fascinating items and stories. Inevitably in the programme there is a valuable item which owners, and I haven't seen it very often, but the times I have seen it, there is a valuable item which the owners had no idea of its worth. It was lying in the garage. It was up in the attic. They, they took it along to, to the show. And there it was. Something rare. Something valuable. Something sought after. Something of great worth. Perhaps... These verses in Genesis are like that. There is depth to them. There is relevance to our life to them. There is Christ found here within these passages. I was reading about archaeologists in Carlisle back in January who were excavating a Roman bath And what fascinated them was not the tiles in the bath or the size of the bath or the dimensions of the bath or the heat of the water, but it was the drain underneath the bath. And in the drain underneath the bath, they found these rare gems. And the archaeologists have surmised that the rich people would not take their rings off as they got into the bath. They they would hold on to them on their fingers for security, but the, the hot water would melt the glue of the gems embossed in their rings, and they would lose these jewels down into the drain. And here, in these verses, there is this rich covenant of works, humbling us, helping us to understand who we are, to recognize that each of us and all mankind is connected to God, not just God is their creator, but God who is in covenant with us. And every one of us has a relation to God within that covenant of either condemnation for breaking it, or of justification through Jesus Christ, the law keeper. Paul O'Grady was associated with the Salvation Army in his life. And in 2016, he was interviewed about this connection to the Salvation Army, and he was asked, did he believe in God? And his answer was, I don't know. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. And he's representative of the, the rising groups within our nation of atheism and agnosticism. But the reality is set out for us here right at the very beginning of the Bible that we are in covenant with God. And we cannot keep that covenant. We cannot earn eternal life. We are lawbreakers. We are sinners before our God. Some objections, some have uh, disputed uh, the covenant, Karl Barth, John MacArthur, and John Murray, surprisingly. And and I'm not going to expand on on their reasons for questioning this covenant of works here, but one of their main contentions is the word is not found here. But that's not really an argument, is it? In chapter one, we, we saw in our studies last year that the Trinity is there. Let us make man, though the word Trinity is not found there. In the covenant with David in Second Samuel chapter 7, the word covenant is not found there either. And yet this divine promise and agreement is present. Another objection is that the relation of God to Adam was that of Father, not a legal one. But legality and love are not contradictory, are they? So what applications are there for us from this foundation for our living? This covenant reveals God and it reveals something about ourselves. It reveals the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? He just comes to Adam. There's no discussion. There's no meeting. There's no conference. He just comes to Adam and says... Don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree, you will die. The tree wasn't poisonous. The tree couldn't have been bad. It was, it was a world straight from the mighty hands of God. He just comes and he says to him, Don't you eat of that tree. But we don't like that. And our world doesn't like that. We want to find our own way. We want to make our own ethics We want to work out our own standards. We want to plow our own furrow. We don't like the thought of an authoritative, sovereign, almighty God dictating to us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. But just as a train is made and is at its best, When it's chugging down those two railway lines, that's what it's made for. Those parameters, those limits, those restrictions. That's what the trains they sign for. And that's when it's at its most majestic. So you and I have been made by the sovereign God to live within the first table and the second table of his law. I was looking through a list of celebrities, which includes Mike Tyson and a a whole range of others, celebrities who had great power, great fame, great influence, great wealth, but who now are bankrupt and lost and peripheral to society. And at the very heart of their fall was a resentment of the ways of God. And as we think of this covenant, the God who comes here, let's have grace to love him. Let's have grace to recognize his wisdom. Let's have grace to bow the knee before him. But it reveals his love and his grace, doesn't it? This incredible act of God giving mankind the opportunity to prove himself, to better himself, To earn a promotion by his obedience. Many people are in dead end jobs with no prospects. They can never climb the ladder. They can never advance. But God comes here in his grace, in his love. And he says to Adam and Eve, Obey me and I will reward you with a richer, fuller, life eternal. Our society doesn't like this. Doesn't see this. It sees God as niggardly, God as restrictive, God as limiting us, God as down on us. But this is our God. God of incredible generosity and love and grace and provision. That reveals his justice, doesn't it? He promised death though there's only one man and one woman when they sinned they died this is our God he keeps his word he fulfills his promises of love and mercy and salvation he fulfills his threats of judgment damnation and hell all of us will stand before him. Every single one of us will give an account to the Almighty, just like Adam, just like Eve, will be summoned before the Most High. Have we kept this covenant of works? Or have we trusted in Jesus who has kept them on our behalf? But it gives us insight into ourselves as well. How unable we are to keep God's law. How weak we are. Adam had everything to help him. He had Eve beside him. He had that meeting with God every evening. He had the promise of eternal life. He had the threat of death. He was in a state of innocence and still he failed. What an insight into human nature. What an insight into our own lives and hearts. How weak we are. How unable we are keep the laws of God but immediately that God, that God who was disobeyed, that God whom they sinned against, that God whom we sin against, stepped in with the promise of a saviour. And it's to this God we come. To this God we look. And this God we trust. Around the countryside there is this contrast often of two farmhouses the old farmhouse and then the new farmhouse the farmer has obviously progressed and saved and and done well and he he shifted from the old farmhouse into the new farmhouse sitting side by side probably for planning reasons and for the good view no doubt the old farmhouse dilapidated no roof no doors no windows dingy, cold, dark, lifeless. The new farmhouse with its big windows, with its underfloor heating, with its great landscape gardens and sweeping drive. They've moved from the old into the new. And we're to do that, however young we are, however old we are. The covenant of works is broken. We can't keep it. We can never save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We need to move into Jesus. Into the Saviour. Into the comfort of peace with God. Into the joy and hope of heaven leaving what Adam and all humanity cannot achieve. And trusting in what Jesus the Son of God Amén.